When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Maria Colacuccio, CEO of Symbio. If we get it right, I mean, we quite literally transform society. I think the gender and race pay gaps result in lifetime wages that are often hundreds of thousands of dollars less for women and people of color. So I think when you think about the wealth gap and how wages compound over time, that's where we have a tremendous opportunity to transform society. And for companies, it's just as big because if we get it right, it means they move away from this cycle of annual one and done remediation. And they actually get to stay on top of this proactively over time on both sides. We really believe that workplace equity is a combination of the two things. We started with pay equity and now we're moving over to more broad workplace equity to look at promotions. And when you can get to both, That's when you have a company that really has an enduring ability to create value and to measure how they're valuing their employees, not just for who they are, but the contributions they bring. This is Maria. She's a tech veteran. She previously co-founded Smartsheet, and she draws upon more than 20 years of experience in technology and communications at companies such as Microsoft, Starbucks, and technology startups that you've never heard of. She has a proven track record of building successful companies with strong core values that are dedicated to its people and customers. She's a recognized thought leader in the HRM and HCM industry and is a frequent speaker and author of the latest trends and solutions in workplace equality. She's a member of the Society of Human Resource Management, the voice of all things work and the World at Work organization, the Total Rewards Association. Today, Maria is the CEO of Syndio, a company that's on a mission to lead the way in fair pay. And that inspired me, and hence I invited her to my podcast. We explore what is broken in today's workplace when it comes to valuing people for the contribution they bring and paying them fairly independent of who they are. We discuss the pivot and what it took to change course. We also discuss the effects that the pandemic introduced and what was critical to not only bounce back, but actually come out stronger. And last but not least, We address the role of the CEO in creating a business that people love talking about. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that the odds of success and surviving any crisis 
starts with having a solution that perceives mission critical and not a nice to have. Secondly, how to prioritize your roadmap by focusing on the smallest ingredient that's driving the biggest impact for your ideal customer. Thirdly, that your ideal customers are not the ones that have the biggest budgets, but the ones that align on your worldviews and show the courage to stick to it no matter what. And fourthly, how to focus your leadership team on looking at a problem and brainstorming a solution collaboratively without blaming and finger pointing. Well, hi Maria, thank you for making the time available today and being a guest on my podcast. Of course, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and that's on purpose because I mean, I was, I think I bumped into one of your messages on LinkedIn and that's what I started to look into your company, Syndio, and got completely impressed with the mission that you're on because it's a mission that is solving a superbly big problem in the world, but we'll talk about it a little later. That inspires me and I always want to help amplify those type of stories because it's for a good purpose. But before we start and dig into like your company and the big idea behind it, if you had to use two or three words to describe yourself as, an, as a person or as an entrepreneur, what words would come up? Oh, I love that question. If I had to use a couple of words, let's see, to describe myself in that facet of my life, because I think we shift and change and morph depending on what environment we're in, whether we're in you know, parent mode or partner mode or CEO mode. I would probably say I'm a completer. I don't know if that's a real word, but I tend to be really good at execution. So the things that I start, I always finish. So I would say I'm a completer. I would say I'm pretty passionate. And I would probably use the third, I don't know if this is the right tense, but something around levity or humor or bringing sort of this concept of not taking everything quite so seriously all the time would be my third. Love it. Yeah, good, uh, good set of characteristics to have particularly the part around the passion and the, like looking out for, for creating a bigger impact or having that passion for the problem likely and then being able to execute and complete it. Because you've got a big, a big problem. I mean, that's a good bridge to go to your company. You've got a big problem to solve here. So talking about Cindio, you I saw on LinkedIn, it was founded in November 2018. What is the big idea behind it? Yeah, and our founding story is pretty pretty interesting as well. So it was actually founded a year before I joined by a gentleman named Dr. Zev Eigen, and he has a PhD JD. And so he founded the company originally with a different purpose. It was a people analytics organizational network analysis solution. And wow. he had the idea just before I joined of starting to take a look at this, this, this concept of pay equity and pay fairness. And had started to make that pivot, but was still primarily focused on organizational network analysis. So when I joined in November of 2018, that was a full sale pivot we decided to make together. And that takes a lot of trust. And so I think from that CEO founder relationship perspective, it's critical. It's critical to have a great relationship there if you aren't the original founder. So I co-founded Smartsheet. There were four of us. And was at that company as a co-founder. But for Cindio, I joined as CEO. And that was the relationship that was really critical to me, was making sure Zeb and I had the same vision and mission. So in November 2018, we made the full sell pivot and started working on the problem of workplace equity by first tackling pay equity. Wow, that's a big one because yeah, you start off on something that's solving a completely different problem, like the people analysis part, which is a big crowded market. And then you 
you kind of nail it, hone in on an element of that, which is the pay inequity and say, okay, well, that's the problem. That's really the problem here <laughs> and solve it. But then you can solve it in a completely different way. Wow. What sparked that conversation? I'm always interested in that. You say, wait a minute, we're onto something, but going there is something bigger and more important. Yeah. And it was early. I mean, so it's no secret now that workplace equity is an enormous issue across the globe. More companies are tackling it all the time now, but they're not always doing it right. And doing it right as Zev knew as a PhD JD who had done this for years in the seat at the law firm, doing it right means using the correct math and methods and doing the work to change the problematic policies that eradicate the bias. So really guiding the discretion. So at the time, this wasn't the type of issue. It didn't have the type of impact and noise that it has now. And so we really did see ahead of the market in terms of where is this going and how is this going to take off and become an important piece of how companies create enduring value and actually measure how they value their employees. So we were quite ahead of the game, which I think is really? what we were. If you think about 2018, it's, it's hard to remember now. Because it's, it has such a heightened issue and, and is so important and boards are talking about it and there's the yeah. ESG movement. But back then, you know, the Me Too movement was starting. And yeah. I think out of that, you know, we sort of saw the pay equity class actions were starting to increase and, and it was getting this general hum. But it was really a gender focused conversation. And one of the things we did from the very beginning in creating software that's ultimately configurable and where you can compare anything, any protected class, we kept saying the intersectionality piece is critical. It's not just a gender discussion. This is about gender, race, ethnicity. If you look at how people are paid and where the unlawful disparities happen, the folks that have intersectionality, Black women, for example, Latina, those are so much more compounded then, for example, white women. This has always been about more than just gender. But back in 2018, the pay equity class actions and the conversation around this were just gender focused. And we saw beyond that. We knew this was something that needed to be solved comprehensively. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think around that time, it was still very much a man women discussion. And it just took it to beyond that, it was taken into all directions. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you forget so quickly about it. <laughs> it has been a problem, of course, for ages. You do. You do. Now that, you know, in this moment right now, it's kind of ludicrous that it was ever positioned as just a gender issue, especially yeah. when you look at the pay gap and how disproportionately it impacts intersectionality. It's pretty remarkable that we were looking at it with such a small lens as a society. Yeah, that's true. I've recently done some work for one of my customers in the UK around HR. And I also saw that in the UK, actually a lot of companies publish their, their pay gap or pay divide reports. I think it's even like a regulatory thing these days. So that's a good thing in itself. I'm not sure whether they follow exactly all the details around intersectionality. We'll see. So what do you believe is the opportunity if you get this right? Like, How will the world be different once the whole world starts to embrace Syndio? Yeah, and I love that you use it that way because I think Symbio can truly be a verb specifically for employees when they're looking at opportunities for work. Six and 10 already 
really value the CEO and company's commitment to social justice issues like gender and race equality and equity in the company. And so if we get it right, I mean, we quite literally transform society. I think the gender and race pay gaps result in lifetime wages that are often hundreds of thousands of dollars less for women and people of color. And if you think about that, this is the impact that I talk about with our employees. Our employees are so passionate and want to know. And something we track is what are the dollars we're literally putting back in the pockets of people that weren't getting them specifically because of something like gender, race, or ethnicity. So I think when you think about the wealth gap and how wages compound over time, that's where we have a tremendous opportunity to transform society. And for companies, it's just as big because if we get it right, it means they move away from the cycle of annual one and done remediation. And they actually get to stay on top of this proactively over time on both sides. So what you mentioned that's very, very wise is there's pay equity, which is equal pay for equal work. And making sure that if you have two people in the same job, that one's not disproportionately paid less because of something like gender or race. But on the other side, you've got the median pay gap. And this is just an average. And what that reflects is distribution and representation. So are all of your folks at the lower levels, a particular gender or race, and all the folks at your upper levels, you know, in your higher quartile of earnings, a particular gender or race. And we can solve that too with technology and looking at promotions analysis and how are you promoting people and offering opportunities for movement in your companies. And so we really believe that workplace equity is a combination of the two things. We started with pay equity and now we're moving over to more broad workplace equity to look at promotions. And when you can get to both, that's when you have a company that really has an enduring ability to create value and to measure how they're valuing their employees, not just for who they are, but the contributions they bring. So I think that is the big opportunity is doing this for companies and employees. Definitely. Yeah. Do companies see it as a carrot or a stick? Probably both. I mean, I think this is evolving. A year or two ago, this was all about the compliance angles and reducing legal risk. How do I make sure I don't become the subject of a pay equity class action with the name of my company in the headlines and taking a massive brand hit? And you look at even the headlines of the past couple of weeks, you've got Blizzard Entertainment, who's under fire. You've got Apple shutting down Slack channels where they're talking about pay equity. You have Amazon dealing with a systematic underleveling case. So that is very real. But I think what we're starting to see over the past 12 months are companies who really believe by making this broader commitment to the S in ESG, that social part that's a little more elusive, by making a real commitment using things that are measurable and calculable, like pay equity and promotions analysis, they can actually reap great benefits from a recruiting and retention perspective because employees are really starting to care about this. And in a tight labor market, there's a lot of choices employees can make. And so I think we've we've seen it evolved from pure carrot to sort of a blend of, of carrot and stick. Yeah. Or no, the reverse, sorry. The, from pure the, the other way around, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, the other way around. And that's pure a good stick. thing because the moment people start to see it, okay, we, become, we can become the magnet for the right talent in the market. That's also a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, it's interesting how you can look at things. Sometimes it's cost, but sometimes it's, it's upside and ideally it's both. So 
started before 2018 then, pivoted in the November timeframe just before 2019 started. I'm always interested in the journey and creating something that, of course, hasn't been done before. I mean, I, I come from a background of enterprise resource planning systems. We had a payroll system. There were some reports in there, possibly about pay gap, but like very, very basic stuff. So this is like exploring a path that, uh, that no one has walked yet. So I'm always interested in, to understand like what, did you, what were the, the key decisions you took in order to create a platform that, yeah, that makes the difference. Yeah, I think the credit for that really needs to go to Zev and his CTO at the time, who's still our CTO, a gentleman by the name of Rob Platzer. They saw that organizational network analysis was a crowded space and that it was really tough to differentiate and it required a lot of consulting assistance to stand up a solution that was very complex with surveys and metadata and and identifying and analyzing you know, how important people were in the terms of their networks. And so they had made the pivot prior to my joining. But I think from where I came from at Starbucks, I was really intent on making that pivot a sure thing. And I think that that was the decision we all made together that was so important because you can't do two things at an early stage. Well, you got to put your eggs in one basket, so to speak. So this idea that they were trying to do O&A and then thinking about sort of this side hustle of pay equity, that's where I think my skills of execution and bringing us together and saying, you know, we've got to choose because we need focus at an early stage company. Lack of focus is a killer. So I had already been involved in the pay equity journey from my time at Starbucks. And what I saw as a communicator was we were trying to go through this progressive moment of being one of the first to announce pay equity results. And it was really important because it was at Howard Schultz's last annual meeting. It was a really big announcement for us. It was the first time we were going public with this. And in that context, I got to know the head of employment law over there. His name's Rob Porcarelli, and he had been running pay equity at Starbucks for 13 years. And in learning more about the archaic, expensive, clunky way this was done from a one-and-done perspective, that's where, as a software entrepreneur, it was very clear to me that this was ripe for innovation. Let me make a small interruption here. Maria just explained how she set up her company for success by realizing two things. Addressing a critical problem in the market first, and secondly, focus on execution towards solving that problem with laser-sharp precision. She deliberately steered her company away from the initial focus of playing a role in the organizational network analysis market, which was a red ocean, and pivoted into a blue ocean with potentially even more reward. This is a key trait that remarkable software companies master. They aim to be different, not just better, and they focus on the essence and then aim all their efforts at creating new value possibilities. And you can master these traits as well. I have two options for you to start. First, read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. Simply go to my website, valueinspiration.com book, and you can find out where to buy it, or actually download the free Kindle version right away. The second thing you can do is get into action right away and surround yourself with a group of like-minded people, tech founders and CEOs that will help you deliver on your top priorities with more impact by removing your blind spots, challenging you to explore new paths, and sharpen your thinking. How? Again, go to valueinspiration.com and see the videos where many of your peers share their experiences about 
the value of the tribe and what they've come to like most. Back to the interview. So that was how we came to found Syndio. Rob and I had decided we were going to go create a startup, really focusing actually on the Payfinder feature set, which we have today. So we kind of were thinking of approaching it from the starting pay angle, because starting pay it has the biggest impact in any pay equity analysis. It's the biggest factor. If you think about it, compounds over time. So if you get someone's starting pay wrong, you're really in for it. So we were thinking about starting 10%, 20% a year. (laughs) Yeah, it has a huge impact and it's the biggest factor in any pay equity analysis. So we said, you know, we're going to start this company and we're going to fix the starting pay conundrum. And during that process of thinking about it and whiteboarding it, we came across Zev and Rob Platzer. And so I joined and the first thing I did very, very first day was I hired Rob out of Starbucks and we started building the deep, sophisticated platform that does this in the right way. And now just recently, it's kind of a really fun full circle. We released the Payfinder feature set, which does enable recruiters to, with every single hire, they can look at both market pay, so the competitive range for a new person, side by side with the equitable range. So what are the folks in my company that are currently doing this work? What are they being paid? And can I set the pay for the new person right in the center? Because otherwise, all those little micro decisions are what get you out of whack in between the old way of these one and done analyses. So it's come full circle now. You know, it's three years later, and now we have the functionality and feature set that we were brainstorming before we even met Zev and and Rob Platzer. What made it so difficult in order to get that right? Because functionality-wise, it's like you put it on the paper and it's like, okay, that's what we need. But I think it's a matter of data. There's a whole range of things that need to come together, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing here is that you can get this wrong. You really can get pay equity wrong. I mean, it's one of the reasons we started a 501c3 called Fair Pay Workplace Alliance, and we brought together the smartest and best minds from the legal side, from the compensation side, and even someone like Heifeldbloom, who's the former chair of the EEOC is that we wanted our clients to have a way to get certified that they were doing this in the right way. And not just our clients, but really, really anybody who was trying to approach pay equity. There's so many ways to gerrymander the data, to disaggregate, to you know look at everyone as if they're their own little special snowflake and then exclude them from the analysis because you've sort of justified their uniqueness that we wanted a way to stand up a certification where companies could go through it and really have that stamp of approval to show that they're doing this well they're communicating a summary of results they're identifying their broken policies and behaviors and setting out on a journey to fix them and I think that's the key. There's just, there's a lot of ways to get this wrong and to do this poorly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So what did you do differently in order to make a remarkable results happening then? I think a couple of things. So the first piece is obviously the methodology. So we have a very, very solid methodology. We've got standards and tools that are embedded into our software solution and the way we do it in the modeling. None of the math is proprietary. Regressions are not a proprietary math algorithm, but it's the way we present it and the UI and the way it takes the client through it that really encourages them to be proactive in doing this consistently and preventatively throughout the year. And I'll give you an example. So in the old method, companies would do this once a year. They'd outsource it to a law firm. The law firm would subcontract to a labor economist. It would take months 
data would go back and forth, and then they'd be presented with a remediation plan. Here are all the people you need to pay. And with our solution, just inherently the way it's designed, it's, it's almost inviting clients to do this when they're looking at merit. If they've got bonuses, they can load proposed bonuses and see if those bonuses are causing any issues. You can look at, you know, before Regorg, you know, God forbid, adverse impact if you're doing a layoff, because that's the other side of the coin where a lot of clients were using us during COVID is to make sure in these layoffs, are they disproportionately impacting a certain gender, race, or ethnicity? So it's a really important reverse use case. And of course, now the use case is around hiring, but that's one that we've seen that's really important. So I think the difference in the differentiator is that this is a system that makes it really easy for companies to stay on top of this over time in a preventative way. Yeah, that's an important one because the dynamics change, as you say, sometimes the focus is on hiring, sometimes it's on keeping. There's so many things that play there. Yeah. Talking about COVID, I'm currently writing my second book, which is all about understanding like the impact of, of resilience software companies and not only to kind of bounce back which was possibly hard at your stage at that point but actually to get out stronger from something that that's just happened did COVID have a negative impact on the business i mean were things changing overnight for you that you had to yeah what what happened there's so many phases to COVID <laughs> that <laughs> i remember very clearly the Monday where the Dow had its biggest drop in history because of COVID. And we were right in the middle of raising our series A. And so that was a really scary moment for us as a company because we didn't know what was going to happen. I think like everyone else, we sort of thought what's going to happen to Q2 and the rest of the year, are people just going to stop in their tracks? And I think a lot of us saw that right at first was this kind of freeze. And then the layoffs came. And for us, we never went out, sort of, we never were a system that wasn't absolutely critical. We never became a nice to have, even in a moment of extreme stress and anxiety for companies because of what I mentioned around adverse impact. So as companies were thinking about layoffs, they really had to make sure they were doing this in a way that protected their legacy and that they were doing it with making sure that fairness wasn't taking a backseat. And So we were an incredibly valuable solution for our clients during that time. And then that evolved into this massive movement around racial equity in companies. And we saw an incredible tailwind from that because, again, we had created a solution from the beginning that was ultimately configurable where you could run analyses at the same time across comparison. So you could look at gender alongside with race and ethnicity in whatever way you wanted, whatever you have in your data, you can compare. So I think once leaders really started to make commitments around addressing racial equity in companies, we were a really obvious way to fulfill and take action on that commitment. Yeah, that's crazy. That's good. Yeah, it's good that you also mentioned that it wasn't becoming nice to have. It It was a critical thing at the end. Not only to customers, the fair approach, but particularly also to employees, because you might need them later on in the, in the process. You know, it's and it's, that's that's what we're really starting to see with employees. You know, they they're starting to ask more questions about equity. They're asking potential employers, "How is it being calculated? What's being done to address pay equity and pay fairness and the pay gap?" Honestly, yeah. again, that which indicates that promotional analysis and movement in your company. 
And the more transparent we are about this, the more engaged employees are. And that's what's going to push us to sort of this society-wide or global solution that's just a no-brainer to this problem. Because that's part of the frustration, I think, in being a CEO of a company like ours and then watching society continue to sort of stand around and admire the problem it's solvable. Like it's solvable right now. We have 200 clients that are solving it. And, and so it's very exciting, but also very, very frustrating when you continue to see the world economic forum, you know, predict this is going to stick around for another 200 years plus with COVID sort of creating this massive setback. It's, it's wild to watch. Yeah. That's putting a nice stake in the ground. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 200 years. Yeah. Well, it's gone up because of COVID, but yeah, it's it's completely solvable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where, where is it? Where's such a number coming from? Anyway, talking about clients, like when you when you went to market and it started all, like what did you learn in the in the sales process? What be, what became kind of the thing that became super important for companies to say, well, to convince them to get going with this? I think this goes back to our conversation about carrot and stick. So again, yeah, yeah. at the beginning. It was about the stick. And now it's very, very much a blended value proposition. So if you think about our clients, they include companies like Salesforce, Adobe, General Mills, Databricks, Nordstrom. We're we're analyzing the pay of over 2.5 million employees. And the clients that we're talking to, they're looking at total comp. And that's really critical. And it's a really important thing to mention, because if you're just looking at base pay, you're missing a ton. There's a lot of dirty secrets hidden in bonuses, in stock options, in RSUs, and those are all part of compensation. So you really need to be looking at everything. And the clients that come to us are seeing great benefit. And I think that's part of why we're seeing so many more of our clients and companies in general starting to communicate that they're doing this. I think at the beginning, three years ago, even though they were moving to software because of the efficiencies that software provided, they were still doing this under privilege. So they still had an attorney directing the work, which is completely possible and feasible with our solution. That's part of why, you know, Zev in designing it as a lawyer built in all those protections that you can still run it under privilege. But the phenomenon we're starting to see as employees start demanding more communication on this is that companies are coming forward and saying, can you help us talk about this? Now we're on top of it. We're looking at every single new hire. We're making sure we're guiding discretion and eliminating bias. And our numbers look very, very good. We now want to bring this to our employees and share the commitment and a summary of results so that we can glean the benefits of it. And I think Stitch Fix is a great example. You know, They did a really profound job in the heat of Black Lives Matter to communicates their employees and publicly, they put it on their public blog, like here are commitments around this issue. And we were included as part of those commitments, but we're seeing that more and more, that transformation of, we want to move this from the darkness of the back room into the light. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. It it absolutely is. That's why I'm very in favor of things like median pay gap disclosure and just bringing some sunlight to these issues. Yeah, exactly. True. Why be secret about it, right? So kind of going through three years in a row right now, like what has been the biggest obstacle for you to, to overcome or for the company? What is, what is the biggest nut to crack? Yeah, 
And it's funny because we have so many lawyers in our company and, and I adore them, but it's honestly for leaders, CEOs, comp committee members on boards to stop looking at this issue through the lens of legal risk. Yes, there's, there's risk here, but this is an issue about employees and how you value employees, both for who they are and the contributions they bring. This is an issue about ultimately reducing attrition, retention, engagement, making sure that you're providing a culture that can actually become diverse, equitable, and inclusive. You can't focus on DEI if you don't first know and understand in an ongoing way that you're paying people without regard to something as foundational as their gender, race, or ethnicity. It's not real. You can't have a commitment to DEI if you're not looking at compensation first. And so I think the obstacle is challenging leadership to take this up as their issue. This is not something to be outsourced to a law firm. This is something that needs to be within the organization and looked at consistently. How have you solved that, that, that particular thing? Is it education? Is that, I mean, yeah. How do you convince people? How do you kind of change perspective? I think honestly, employees are doing that for us because oh, yeah. what's happening is they're bringing this issue up. They're deciding where to work and whether to stay because of these commitments. And in Edelman's latest employee trust barometer, one of the things that was very clear to me is that employers have a great opportunity to earn the trust of their people. People are ready to trust their employers, but what they need to see is that the commitments they make around these topics are not performative, that there is a small gap between commitments and action. And so I think employees are really taking the charge on our behalf in doing things also like sharing spreadsheets of their salaries and having salary parties. I mean, this is a new phenomenon. And when the employers, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So when employers leave the narrative open for employees to fill, they will fill it. And oftentimes they'll fill it with information that's not accurate. Because when you're sharing spreadsheets of pay, you don't see the underlying policies or behaviors that really impact pay. Like why does the company pay what they pay? And so you, you take all sorts of, of ideas and presumptions from that, that may not be, may not be accurate. And, you know, there's a Gartner research report that shows that most employees think the pay equity and pay gap situations are actually worse than they really are at companies. And that's on the employer. It's their responsibility to start driving the narrative and sharing information and being more transparent in order to tell the story that they want to tell that's the, the right one and the accurate one. Yeah, correct. That's how it starts. Yeah, nice to see that the grassroots is really making an impact. Employees influencing that, that type of behavior. And yeah, then the right companies will stand up. They, they will and they are. And exactly. Very exactly. So what are you most proud of achieving so far? I mean, is there any customer where you say, okay, well, what I've seen, how they have transformed this is just remarkable. Yeah, I think I'm really proud of companies like Coinbase who were embroiled in pretty big controversy in the midst of Black Lives Matter. They were getting a lot of flack for their response and they wanted to take action and they wanted to make it real. And they did. And it was, you know, within weeks, that they had become a client, looked at their pay equity, and then quickly announced in their annual report that they were doing this with intent to share more. And it's companies like that that aren't perfect. No, no company is perfect. And I think 
that's important for leaders to remember. There's still a lot of leaders that don't want to look under the hood because they're afraid of what they might find. So it's the companies that sort of stand up and say, okay, I know I'm going to have issues. I know other companies have issues. I know that discretion across large populations favors the majority. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to lift the hood. I'm going to find the rest. I'm going to acknowledge it. And I'm going to start scraping it off. Those are the clients that I think I'm the most proud of because that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage and faith in your employee base that you can stand up and tell them, we haven't done a great job at this, but we're starting now and we mean it. And we're going to stick with it. And we're going to tell you what we find along the way at a summary level, of course, and and commit to you to continue solving it. So I think those are the types of customers that that bring me a lot of, of pride. It is it's the real... And it's the real proof of the transformation, the change that you seek to make in the market. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, the, I, like, I think you used the right word there, courage, mm-hmm. particularly around this particular area. I wrote a book, The Remarkable Effect, in which I highlight the 10 traits that define a remarkable software business. And a lot of your story is all about, is mimicking what I wrote about. What do you believe is required to create a software business or a business in itself that people keep talking about? I think one of the really unsexy phrases that no entrepreneur wants to hear because it's out of our control is timing. I think timing is incredibly important. You can have a visionary idea at the wrong time and be unsuccessful. So I think that is absolutely critical. You have to hit at the right time when the market is ready for whatever innovation that you're providing. And it has to show that this it's, it's necessary. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. I think that's really important. I think the other one is focus. Again, I think the phrases that I would refer to are not, not super, they're kind of boring, honestly. <laughs> they take a lot of rigor and discipline, but I think, I think a remarkable company is able to say no to things and have focus and really keep their client and customer in mind as to what do they need to truly solve this problem. And some of those solutions are going to be boring, but important. And those are the ones you have to stay focused on. Trait number seven in my book. Yeah, two things that come to mind. (laughs) No, you're you're spot on. And the timing timing is is definitely, and that's where curiosity comes in and kind of keeping a sense of like, keeping your your sensors in the right way to pick that up and to be able to do something about it and be ready at the right time. That's again, the execution part. I like the way you phrase that. So from all the lessons learned so far, being the CEO now of the company, what would be a do and or a don't that you would advise or recommend to other people that aspire to be a CEO or that aspire to kind of make a big pivot like you did? Yeah, I think the first thing in today's environment is that workplace equity is a core tenant of great management. So if you're the CEO, you are the chief equity officer. I mean, that's part of what you do. And it's it's really your responsibility to be thinking about how you're creating a culture that values and measures the value of your people. I think that's absolutely critical. And I think without that, companies are not going to be able to endure or be durable. I think the days of you know, churning and burning through your employees and and not addressing issues of workplace equity are really fading into the past. And I think that's a good thing. So that would be my first piece of advice. And then the second piece of advice is really around rigor 
into the data that runs your business. So if you don't have your hands on the ever-changing metrics and aren't using that to run your business, you're missing a huge opportunity to see what's really happening. We have a weekly meeting and a dashboard where we're looking at the in-depth metrics that power our objectives for the year on a weekly basis. And it keeps you honest. And the other thing that it does is it removes the tension and creates this leadership team that's looking at a problem and brainstorming a solution without finger pointing, because you're just looking at a set of metrics and a set of data, and that's driving the conversation. So it's not about, you know, marketing's not delivering the leads or sales isn't going after the right targets or, you know, products wrong. It's here are the metrics that are going to help us achieve our objective as a business. We're looking at them on a weekly basis, and it's driving our decision-making in a way that just removes tension or finger pointing. It's not about blame. It's about solving problems and finding opportunities to accelerate. And I think companies that aren't really digging into their operational metrics are missing out. Great advice. I couldn't have said it better myself. So yeah, to kind of to finish this off, I think people have got a pretty good perspective about the importance of what you're solving. So where can people go to find out more about companies in Dio or to connect with you to say hi? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, our website, cindio.com. And then I'm on all the things. And typically I'm M. Colacurcio. So Twitter, LinkedIn, or all the different various platforms. So yeah, that's the best way to get in touch with me. Thanks for this fascinating interview, for your openness and your inspirational insights. I think I learned a great deal. I'm a lot more clear about like what's really going on. So thanks for that. And yeah, good luck on the next part of the journey. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Maria. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on the mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Maria Colacuccio, CEO of Sindio. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. 
Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.